You know, I titled this Heart Conditions. And, and you know, doctors have all these tests, right, that they like to do on our hearts especially. I think especially men at a certain age, probably my age. So I've been told and challenged and encouraged and bugged. Someday I'll go. But anyway, you go in and they're checking your heart, right? And so they, they maybe look at your blood pressure. And I... I always struggle with this because I go into the doctor and they put the cuff on and they say, oh, your blood pressure is, and they read off these two numbers and they look at you with a smile. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Those numbers mean nothing to me. I, if the nurse has a smile when she says it, I say, oh, good, that's, that's good. I don't know. Why do they look at you as if you should know these things? And I suppose if you have it done all the time, you know, like that number is good and this number is bad. But I don't know and they act like I do. It's just one of those things. Another check that they might do on your heart is an echocardiogram. That's an ultrasound that takes a picture of your heart so they can see. Uh, there's the ECG or the electrocardiogram, which checks the, the heart's rhythm, making sure you're re- walking to the right beat, I think, is kind of the idea there. Sometimes that's a stress test as well. There's an angiogram goes in, takes an X-ray of the arteries around the heart. There might be blood tests to look for different levels in your blood of things like glucose, your red blood cells, your white blood cells, platelets. I always wondered how they did that. Like, does somebody get that little vial of, of blood and they sit there and count one? To, that's like a horrible job. Is that your job? You just count every little one. That does not sound fun. All of these things are checked against a range that has been determined as healthy. If you're within this range, that's good. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, Jesus gives us five tests to check the heart condition of our spiritual lives. Five checks on the heart condition of our spiritual lives. All of this is coming out of Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. We've been going back to this as we've entered into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And that's why we're, we're calling this um, Kingdom Living Part 4. So the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is about living in the kingdom. What does that look like? What does it mean? So it's almost like a, a sermon within our larger study of Matthew, as we look at this sermon that Jesus preached. And shortly before that sermon, Matthew tells us that Jesus begins his public ministry, and he goes around preaching, and Matthew tells us the theme behind his preaching, which is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then in the very next chapter, Matthew begins telling us the Sermon on the Mount. And this idea of calling to repentance lies behind the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. If we miss that, we're going to misunderstand what Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus gives us these five checks on our hearts. And he's going to pull in the Old Testament law, especially the Ten Commandments. So some of these should be uh, familiar to us. They certainly were to his listeners. And we understand this. Do certain things, don't do other things. Thou shalt not. Don't do those things, they're bad. But he's going to use them in unexpected ways. And one of the things that's unexpected, before we get to the passage itself, is a pattern that Jesus uses over and over again. For each one of these things, he's going to say, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. 
You have heard that it was said, don't do this, but I tell you. Now, we read that today, and I think we can understand that Jesus is reinterpreting, he's explaining something, he's, he's overruling some things. We understand that, but it's even more than that. You see, in their day, when a rabbi would teach, they would maybe read a passage of scripture, and then they would say, well, rabbi so-and-so teaches this, and rabbi so-and-so teaches this, and there were kind of schools of thought, right? We have like Calvinism and Arminianism. Well, for them, it was even more like, do you follow rabbi so-and-so? Oh, yes, I am his disciple. So I will explain what other rabbi says, but then I'll come back to, well, my rabbi says this, and that's what I follow. Very seldom, in fact, it was unheard of for a teacher to get up and say, let me tell you what I believe. They didn't want to stand on their own authority. They wanted to prove that they were in line with other rabbis. They were under the authority of these other teachers. So when Jesus gets up and says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, Jesus is speaking with an authority that was unacceptable in their day. How dare you? Who do you think you are to say you have the proper interpretation? You have the proper understanding of this. In fact, Matthew helps us to understand how shocking this was to the crowds in Matthew chapter 7, 28 to 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority. And again, I think we get that in our modern mindset, like, oh, yeah, he taught with authority. But it's different to them. It was like, who does he think he is to say what he thinks God's word says? Now, why? Why could Jesus say, you have heard, but I tell you? How could Jesus claim to have an authoritative view on what the word of God says? Because he was there when it was written. Because those are his words. And if you want to know what something says and how to understand it, talk to the person that wrote it. That's what Jesus is saying. I tell you, this is what what God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, this is what we meant. Let me explain it to you. So Jesus is dealing with the or the correct interpretation and he's challenging incorrect interpretations that were being uh, taught and widely spread at that day. So let's look at these five heart conditions. And the question for each one needs to be do you do I need to repent? So we're checking ourselves against a standard and asking ourselves do we need to repent? So the first one, have you murdered anyone? Okay, chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, hopefully right now, as you ask yourself, do I need to repent? Have I murdered anyone? Hopefully the answer is no. I'm I'm really hoping nobody's feeling incredibly convicted right now. If you are... Please don't talk to me afterwards. Maybe call the police, okay? But do you need to repent? Have you murdered anyone? Now, they would have heard this and said, oh, I'm righteous. I don't need to repent. I haven't murdered anybody, but Jesus isn't done. And I'm going to read this straight out of my Bible. I'm not going to put all the text up on the screen today. It's just too much. Verses 22 through 26. 
It says, you, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister is something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus says, understand what's behind that law. The question is not just have you killed someone. Because the point of that law was people are created by God in his image. And therefore it is wrong to murder them. And Jesus says, but if that is true, should that not also apply to hating them? To having bitterness against them? And Jesus is using another common rabbinical technique, which is... He he states something, and then he's going to go so far to the opposite. He's emphasizing, don't go that way. Go as far as you can the other way. And sometimes rabbis would get to the extremes to make a point. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's making extreme points. And he's saying anger against a brother or sister or anyone is the same heart condition as murder. And he says in verses 23 through 24, we can't just deal with it through religious activity. Well, don't just say, I went and I gave my my offering at the temple. I went and I prayed today. I did my devotion. So it's okay that I have this, this anger in my heart because I went to church. I put in my time. He says, no, go and deal with the heart issue first. In 25 to 26, he uses the picture of settling a debt. And that's really the picture here. It's not just going to court for anything. When he says settle matters quickly. See, in that time, if, if I owed you money and I refused to pay, you could take me to court. And the courts would say, yep, he owes you money. He's guilty. He goes in jail until he can pay it back. Now, let's think about the logic of this. You couldn't work in jail. You didn't get paid back then. In fact, you had to provide for your own housing, your own clothing, and your own food in a Roman jail. So you would sit in that jail until you paid off your debts, which basically meant until your family was able to raise enough money on your behalf. This was a bad situation. And Jesus is saying, you understand that if you owe somebody money, you better take care of it before you get to court or you're in big trouble. He's saying, no, understand, it's just as serious to have bitterness in your heart toward a fellow believer. And later on in the sermon, he's going to say toward anybody. He says, we must not let it linger. We must deal with it. The point here that Jesus is not saying it's on you to fix every situation. We have to be honest. Trying to deal with the situation may not fix it. But there's that principle, as much as it depends on you, go to the person. 
And if that doesn't fix things, you need to deal with the hate and the anger in your own heart. So ask yourself, do you need to repent? Well, do you have anger against anyone? Have you ever had anger or bitterness against anyone? If so, Jesus, the Son of God, is saying you are as guilty as if you had murdered someone. Don't you feel encouraged right now? This is one of those sermons, as I'm going through it, I, it's not the most encouraging sermon. But wait till we get to the end, okay? Because really the point leading up to it is to make you feel as bad as possible. I'm just going to lay it out there, okay? If you're feeling guilty, I'm doing my job this morning. But wait, there's good news at the end. So stick with me. Second heart condition, adultery. In chapter 5, verse 27, he says this, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Do you need to repent this morning? Have you cheated on your spouse? And, and like, hopefully, again, like you this morning, you, you might be thinking, no, I haven't done that, therefore I'm righteous. And that's how they heard this. I'm good. Never done that. And Jesus says, okay, let's get to the heart of the matter. Look at 27 to 30. You have said it was said, you, shall, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You see the extreme opposite here. He's saying, don't let this go. They would have stood up in a crowd and shouted, this person was caught in adultery. They would have pointed out that sin. It was a big deal to them. But how many of them in that crowd, and how many of us here today, allow lustful thoughts to just sort of percolate in our lives So he's giving this extreme opposite. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, be careful. I do not believe Jesus is actually saying gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. That's not the point. The point is to take sin seriously and deal with it. Because the truth is, if you're having trouble and you're struggling with lust, I don't care how many eyes you gouge out and how many hands you cut off, you're still going to have that heart condition. What Jesus is saying is deal with it. Don't let it go. In this situation, Jesus is uniquely speaking to men. Men, we need to take this seriously. We live in a world saturated with pornography. And this command right here needs to cut us to the quick. Deal with it. But ladies, let's be careful. It's not just a male issue. Lustful thoughts, inappropriate thinking, looking at others and thinking, I wonder if, what if I was with that person? Maybe things would be better. That person would love me and care for me. Looking at inappropriate things online is not just a male problem either. So ask yourself this morning, do you need to repent? Because the Son of God is saying, please check your heart and take it seriously. 
But before we leave this topic, Jesus has another thing to say about adultery. And it's in verses 31 to 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In Jesus' day, somebody just had to get a piece of paper to divorce their wife. This was uniquely on the husbands at this point. Now, the Jewish law specifically said they could only divorce if she was unclean, which they understood to be sexually immoral. She had had an adulterous relationship. Unfortunately, as people like to do, we love to debate and argue and change definitions of words. And so by Jesus' day, they had changed the understanding of unclean basically to mean anything the guy didn't like. In fact, there is a record of one rabbi saying this would apply if she served her husband burnt food. Can you imagine? How silly to break off a marriage relationship, a covenant before the Lord God Almighty, simply over something silly as, I don't like what my spouse has done. And Jesus gets to the heart of the issue here. They were using divorce as a way to follow their sinful desires. And isn't that what adultery is? He says, look at the heart of it. Isn't that what adultery is? You want to fulfill yourself in some other way outside of the marital relationship, so you're going to go and look for that relationship somewhere else. He says you're using divorce in the same way. Now, I want to be careful here and very clear. Some of you this morning have been through divorces in your life. And I want to make two key points that I think the Christian church has got to hold on to today. Because this, like so many of these sins, this is becoming too acceptable. Number one, clear point number one. Jesus, the Son of God, is clearly saying in this passage that divorcing a spouse for any reason other than cheating on you is wrong and sinful. Divorcing a spouse according to the Son of God for any other reason other than that spouse cheating on you, having an adulterous relationship, is wrong and sinful. Clear point number two, wherever sin is present, there is an opportunity for repentance and grace. We must hold those two things on this topic. Divorce is wrong. If you're struggling in your relationship, deal with it. Fix it. Go to a counselor. Christians, we need to hold up. I will fight for my marriage no matter what. The Son of God says this is a heart issue. But likewise, I want you to hear, if you've been through a divorce in your life, God's not up in heaven going, well, I'm done with you. Like any other sin, there is grace and their forgiveness. Sometimes I think in our effort to provide grace and forgiveness, we redefine the sin to make it not sinful. That is not the answer. Hold up what is truth and hold out what is grace. Both those two things need to be taken together. So do you need to repent? Have you ever had any lustful thoughts? 
Have you been divorced for any reason other than marital unfaithfulness? Then you are, according to Jesus, the Son of God, guilty of adultery. And you need to repent. How are you feeling right now? Jesus isn't done with us. Heart condition number three, breaking oaths. Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Now, this was, in Jewish thinking, an oath was like a legal binding contract, right? They didn't sign their names on thing, things. They would make an oath. I promise to you in the sight of the Lord. I declare to you based on the Almighty God. So this is an oath. It's a legally binding contract. Have you ever broke a legally binding contract. And hopefully, again, hopefully most of us are sitting here going, no, I mean, you know, bent a little bit. And they would have heard the same thing. Oh no, I've upheld, I've upheld all of my legally binding oaths. But look at what Jesus says, verses 34 to 37. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You see, at this time, they took that command from the Old Testament to keep the oaths you make in the name of the Lord. That's what God's law says. Keep the oaths you have made in the name of the Lord. They had taken this to say, well, if we declare an oath based on something else, we don't have to keep that. That's not a sin. There was a whole system, a ranking system of oaths, and which was more powerful than the others. One rabbi taught that swearing by Jerusalem, that's not binding. You can break that oath. But swearing toward Jerusalem, oh, that one's serious. I'm not making this up, friends. This is what Jesus is talking to. So we need to understand their culture and what's going on so we can better apply it to ours. The emphasis was saying the right words in the right way. And if you were really good, and you were really careful, and you used different words, well, you didn't have to keep that oath. As long as you said it in a certain way, that wasn't binding on you. Jesus' point here, I don't think is actually about legally taking oaths. I think some people take that too far. His point is, if you say it, mean it. Mean what you say and say what you mean. And if you make a commitment, follow through on it. You say, well, I didn't promise. Have you ever said that? Parents like that one. Not, not us as parents. Like, I remember my parents. Well, I didn't say I pro- I don't think I've ever used that with my kids. I just broke a pride. I just lied there. I'm pretty sure I probably have. Well, I didn't promise. Or how many of you write if you cross your fingers? <laughs> Off the hook. Not legally binding. Every, no court in the world can convict you if your fingers were crossed. Because that means that you don't really mean it. And that's silly, isn't it? But how often do we justify in our own minds? Well, it's not really what I meant. They, they misheard me. Or I changed my mind. I don't really think that. I know I said that. And Jesus is saying, mean what you say. So let me ask you, 
Do you do what you say you will do no matter what? Do you say what you mean and mean what you say? Jesus says, if not, then it is as if you have broken a legal oath and you need to repent. One more. Verses 38 through 42. Jesus says in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. This phrase right here, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, as far as I understand, is repeated three times in the Old Testament law. And it has to do with the principle they understood, I think, a lot more than we do today. There was a whole section of ancient Near Eastern law that fell under the concept of retribution. And I think we understand it to some degree, but it was a really big deal to them. How much can you do to someone that has hurt you? What retribution can you give them? And in many ancient societies, there was no limit. Someone insulted you? Well, you got to kill them. Someone broke your fence? You burned down their house. Someone accidentally kills your cow? You kill their family. Now, again, we we laugh. Those things happened. That was a real deal for them. Because remember, you know, we're all selfish people and selfish people go, oh, well, you owe me now. Now I'm going to come after you. I'm going to prove how important I am. It's a good thing we don't treat people like that today, right? We're much more civil. And so the Old Testament law had this phrase, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And the whole point of that phrase was to limit retribution. Somebody kills your cow, guess what? They owe you a cow, and that's it. That's the point of it. Someone breaks your fence, they owe you a new fence, and that's it. You don't get to go after their family. It was mercy that God put that in the Old Testament. He was speaking to a culture that said, I'm going after you for everything I can. Now we fast forward to Jesus' day and understand how they took it. You broke my tooth. I get to break yours. It's my right. You broke my fence. I get to break yours. It's my right. And it became this God-given right based on the Old Testament law. Something that was meant to restrict retribution became something that justified extreme retribution to get you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 39 to 42. He says, but I tell you, do not resist If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I just realized as I read you one more. Sorry. I'll repent. (laughs) Look at what Jesus is saying. Friends, Christians, our goal is not our rights. Modern American evangelicalism, our goal is not our rights. That's not where we are to focus. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You want to stand on your rights? You're missing the point. Jesus says what you stand on is love. Love. That's 
the goal, not your rights, love. And he gives three examples. A slap on the cheek was extremely offensive in that society. I imagine it still is today. He says, somebody slaps you on one side, turn to them the other two. They could have taken someone to court in that instance. He says, no, no, you turn to them the other cheek. Again, he's giving an extreme example. But the point is, you don't go after them and slap them on the cheek. Well, I have my rights. He says, no, you show them love. Someone takes your shirt. And and in that day, they would have kind of an outer cloak or coat and then a tunic or a shirt underneath it. It wasn't necessarily like underwear. It was just a shirt underneath it. And the law actually said that you could sue someone and take their coat. You couldn't take the shirt underneath it. That was, I mean, that would leave the guy indecent and take away his dignity. And Jesus is saying, understand what he's saying. If someone is doing something to you, even that is clearly wrong, they take your shirt. That was wrong. He says, we'll offer them the cloak as well. Now, again, Jesus isn't saying it's it's wrong to go to the police. It's wrong to report a crime. No, those things are good. The point is our hearts are not to get that person. I'm going to go after you. I'm going to show you. That's sin. Under Roman law, a soldier could ask anyone to carry their gear for one mile. The army was on the move. They could grab someone and just say, you carry my gear one mile. And Jesus says, don't just go one mile. Go the extra mile, right? Do you hear all the phrases here? Give them the shirt off your back. There it is. Go the extra mile. There it is. These things come from somewhere. Jesus says, don't just try to meet the minimum demands. Live an act service out of love for that person. So have you ever sought unjust retribution for a wrong done to you? I hope not. But do you show love to those who have wronged you? To those you serve? Do you seek to go above and beyond? And if that's not our heart condition, Jesus says you need to repent. Heart condition number five, betrayal. Jesus says in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Now that's not actually what God's word said. The Old Testament law said, love your neighbor, said nothing about hating your enemies. They had added that. The Pharisees had added some of these things on. Well, love your neighbor, but it's okay to hate the other guys. And Jesus says, that's not what it means. See, they had again, established this elaborate system of determining who is their neighbor. There's a parable about that, right? The Good Samaritan. Who's your neighbor? Because they would sit around and debate, is that person your neighbor? Because if they are, you have to love them. But if they're not, you're off the hook. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. Look at what he says. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Jesus says... 
When God said, love your neighbor, he literally meant anyone else. Anyone. Don't sit around trying to determine, well, I have to love this person, but not this one. I have to treat this person well, but not this one. And he gives reasons. He says, verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That means to be like God. We are to live as followers of Jesus, like our Father in heaven. And he says, look at how God treats people. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. Could you imagine if God every day said, well, that person, he's not, you know, if he was like Santa Claus with a list and checking it twice. If every day when the sun came up, well, that person was bad yesterday. No sun for them. Well, that farmer was bad, so no rain for them. And the Bible says, no, there's a thing called common grace. God shows love to everyone in certain ways. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. So he says, should not we as followers of Christ, should not we as followers of God and living in the kingdom, should we not treat others equally in love? Even the worst of sinners. And again here, and I love that Matthew puts this in over and over again, even tax collectors. Because that's what Matthew was. Matthew was the tax collector. And they like didn't even merit being the sinners. They were lower than that. They were the tax collectors. And Jesus says, even tax collectors know to treat their friends well. Basically, he's saying, if that's what God's word was saying, Even the tax collectors are doing that. You guys are called to be better. As Christians, the way we treat each other should not, cannot, must not depend on how that person is treating us. That's not the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord says the way we treat others depends on who God is. Period. Period. Ignoring someone, shunning them, refusing to talk to someone gossiping about someone, those things have no place in the body of Jesus Christ. So have you ever betrayed a friend? I pray and I hope that the answer is no. But what about loving your enemies? What about loving those you don't like? What about loving those that are rude and awful to you? What about those that make your life difficult or even are persecuting you? Jesus is saying, if you're not showing love to them, you're just as guilty as if you had betrayed a friend. And Jesus is going to wrap all this up into one final test. It's kind of the standard under which all the rest of them fall. And it's short. It's not sweet, but it's short. And it's the repentance test. How do you know whether or not you need to repent? And he says this in first. Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. At this point, anybody listening to Jesus, and if I've done my job, anybody listening to me this morning, including myself, should come to one unavoidable conclusion. I need to repent. I need to repent. Friends, let me give you some news today. You are not perfect. I am not perfect. 
God's law said that we were to be, we are to be perfectly holy just as God is perfectly holy. He created us that way. And in Genesis chapter 1:31, after creating man and woman, he says that it's good. It's very good. They were perfect. They were holy. There was no sin, but then sin comes along. And we're all guilty. And we all live in sin. We all have conditions of our heart that we need to be honest about ourselves with. And the whole point of what Jesus is saying is that we all need to repent. And I said there was good news at the end. Because the point of this passage is not just to make us feel awful and guilty. I say not just. That is part of the point. We need to understand our guilt. We need to come to that place where we understand we need to repent. And let me give you a brief illustration that I think helps this. I've shared before that I was a lifeguard at a camp in college. And as a lifeguard, there were basically three types of campers. There were those that came and knew how to swim. We liked those campers. They were good. They, in general, knew how good of a swimmer they were. They, in general, they, they said, I'll do this and not that. They kind of took care of themselves. This was at a beach. It was not at a pool. You couldn't see past the surface of the water. It was terrifying to be a lifeguard in that situation because when they went under, you started counting. But if you saw, in general, that person knew how to swim, you knew they were probably going to be okay. There was the second group, those who didn't know how to swim at all, and they were scared of the water. We liked that group, too. Because they tended to, they limited themselves. They wouldn't go into the deep end. Well, they didn't pass the swimming test. They weren't allowed to. So they were pretty much okay. They started drowning and thrashing around. You just told them to to stand up because the water was at their knees. (laughs) 99% of my saves were that. Just stand up. Just stand up. Oh. Third group. This was the scary group. Every once in a while, you got kids that didn't know how to swim, didn't know that they didn't know how to swim, and had no concept of what drowning was and how awful it was. And those kids would come, and they would get on an inner tube, and they would go out to the deep end, and they would jump off the diving platform onto the inner tube, one after another after another, and then they would miss. I remember one day so distinctly, I think we had 12 saves with this one group. Because one kid, I remember, he went right through the center of the inner tube and did not come up. He didn't know how to swim. And he jumped in laughing and yelling and having the best time because he had no concept that he didn't know how to swim and he didn't know that he could drown. So he never sought help. He never reached out for help. He went smiling into the depths of the water. Now, don't get me wrong. We saved him. We pulled him out. He was fine. I didn't be like, well, that'll show you. No. (laughs) We saved him. But here's my point. The people who struggle the most to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ are those who believe in their heart, I'm okay. I'm a good person. And so the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to us with the beginning, horrific, difficult truth. We are sinners and we need to repent. But if we can accept that, 
and let the anxiety build a little bit and feel the weight of shame and guilt just a little bit, then we're ready to say, who will save me? And that's the whole point of the gospel. That's the whole point of what Jesus is doing so that when he goes to the cross and he dies in their place and he raises from the dead and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, they say, I need that because I'm in big trouble on my own. Friends, don't listen to the lies of your own heart telling you that your sin is not a big deal and that you are okay. Jesus pulls back the curtain of our hearts here and he says, check your condition and see if you need to repent. To repent is to turn away from sin. And when you do that, you turn to Jesus Christ. And that's where we have grace and salvation. And God says, I know you're not perfect, but my son Jesus died in your place. And I love you and I accept you. Let us check our hearts and see where we need to repent. Let's take sin seriously and never allow our own sin to redefine what sin is. But then let us turn to the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a tough passage. It is a difficult truth because our own hearts want to rebel against this. We want to redefine and explain away and negotiate with your word so that it doesn't have to apply to us. Oh, sure, it applies to everybody else. But God, our own hearts constantly are trying to tell us we're okay. And I pray that we would take seriously the words of your son to check our hearts against these attitudes and these actions that go beyond just some written rules to say, did you do this? And if not, you're okay. But to really look at our hearts and say, but I meant it that way. And I thought about that. And I held on to that anger and that bitterness. God, may we deal with sin and turn to you in repentance and say, Father, save us, that we might then see the incredible grace and mercy of your Son, Jesus Christ who died and gave his life to set sinners, even sinners like us, free that we may be saved. In his name we pray. Amen.